You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Let's try it again. Good morning. Good morning. Hey guys, my name is Matt Tolander. I get to serve Midtown Church as the leadership development pastor. Uh, and it's a huge privilege to be able to just share some thoughts with you this morning. Please grab your seat if you haven't already and turn in your Bibles or in your phones or whatever you have with you to Psalm chapter 1. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 1 this morning, continuing our series for the summer, which is appropriately called the Psalms of Summer. We'll look at a different psalm each week. And while you're getting there, while you're getting to Psalm chapter 1, I wanted to read to you from a column in the New York Times that I found a couple weeks ago uh, during the week of the 4th of July. This column is written by Ruth Whitman, who is a British author who lives in California. It's called America the Anxious. America the Anxious. Here's what Ruth Whitman has to say. Happiness in America has become the overachiever's ultimate trophy, a vicious trump card. It outranks professional achievement and social success family, friendship, and even love. Its invocation can deftly minimize others' achievements and take the shine off our own. This obsessive, driven, relentless pursuit is a characteristically American struggle, the exhausting daily application of the Declaration of Independence. But at the same time, this elusive MacGuffin is creating a nation of nervous wrecks. Despite being the richest nation on earth, the United States is, according to the World Health Organization, by a wide margin, also the most anxious. With nearly a third of Americans likely to suffer from an anxiety problem in their lifetime. America's precocious levels of anxiety are not just happening in spite of the great national happiness rat race, but also perhaps because of it. Also perhaps because of it. She continues, since moving to the States just shy of a year ago, I've had more conversations about my own happiness than in the whole rest of my life. The subject comes up in the park, pushing swings alongside a mother I met moments before, with the man behind the fish counter at the supermarket, with my gym instructor, and with our babysitter who arrives to put our son to bed armed with pamphlets about a happiness retreat in Northern California. While the British way can be drainingly negative, The American approach to happiness can spur a debilitating anxiety. The initial sense of promise and hope is seductive, but it soon gives way to a nagging, slow-burn feeling of inadequacy. Am I happy? Happy enough? As happy as everyone else? Could I be doing more about it? Even basic contentment feels like failure when pitched against capital H happiness. The goal is so elusive and hard to define, it's impossible to pinpoint even when it's been achieved. A recipe for neurosis. And I read this and I think, has anyone ever been so right about anything in their life? (laughs) It's incredibly insightful, is it not? So the pursuit of happiness is more than just an unalienable right with which our creator has endowed us. Somehow, it's also become America's greatest commandment. It's it's our declarative birthright as American citizens. It's the only achievement that matters. It trumps all others. And this is why when we notice that one of our neighbors or our friends or our coworkers is doing better than us or has the thing that we want but don't have, 
we comfort ourselves by thinking, well, sure, they have more money or they have a nicer house, they have a better job, but they aren't really happy. And we post photos and tweets by the minute to prove that we are, in fact, happy, to prove it to everyone else and to prove it probably to ourselves. Ruth Whitman called happiness the overachiever's ultimate trophy. So we all understand this morning that wealth and success and power and prosperity and everything else, they aren't worth anything if we're not happy. And yet we also seem to be utterly perplexed about how to achieve the one thing that we really want more than anything else. Don Draper puts it really well on the TV show Mad Men uh, when he tells one of his clients, you're happy because you're successful for now. But what is happiness? It's a moment before you need more happiness. So one of the greatest ironies of human existence is that the search for happiness is one of the chief sources of unhappiness. The search for happiness is one of the chief sources of unhappiness, which makes the portion of scripture that we're looking at this morning especially relevant to each of us today. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read Psalm 1 together, and we'll dive in. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you this morning. Our rock, our Lord, our Redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's look at Psalm 1 together. Starting at the beginning, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. So Psalm 1 opens with the phrase, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. The man there, the Hebrew, is gender neutral. So it's blessed is the person. And the Hebrew word that's translated here, blessed, blessed, really means happy. It means joyful. It means satisfied. It means fulfilled. And so I want to explore that this morning. What can this ancient poem teach us about what it means to be really happy as human beings, even now, in a modern context, there are four principles, I think, that we can pull out of this psalm about happiness. Four things that are true about happiness from this psalm. The first is that happiness is possible. Happiness is possible. And for some of us this morning, that may actually be a staggering statement, or at least it should be. And maybe it isn't staggering to you, and you're like, really? Like, I got out of bed for this on a Sunday morning to hear the B-team preacher guy tell me that happiness is possible? <laughs> Let me explain. Let me explain, let me explain. Almost all of us, we start out, perhaps as children, thinking that happiness is natural. We think happiness is natural. Like There are unhappy people, but like they screwed up. Our parents warn us. We get all of these dire warnings from our parents about how hard life is. And once you get out in the real world, you'll understand. Once you have kids of your own, you'll understand. And you better save that money instead of spending it all. And we think, well, okay, 
if I'm good enough, if I'm smart enough, if I work hard enough, then I will be just fine. And the people who aren't happy are the ones who have the problem. And then as time goes on, we begin to realize that happiness isn't anywhere near as easy as we thought. And we start to realize even that the most successful people, the most experienced people, the most gifted people, the wealthiest people, oftentimes they're the most cynical people. They're the most cynical about whether happiness is even possible. And then once we begin to really contend with life ourselves, and once we begin to really participate in that declarative birthright of pursuing happiness, we start to realize just how elusive happiness can be. So we start out thinking that happiness is natural, and then many of us end up thinking happiness is ultimately unachievable. And the teaching of the Bible is that happiness is neither of those things. Happiness is neither natural, nor is it unachievable. Teaching of the Bible is that happiness is possible. Implicit in this text is the notion that happiness is possible. Not natural, not achievable, certainly not inevitable, but possible. It is possible to be a fundamentally and consistently happy person. So, if happiness is possible, then why aren't more people happy? Because we seek it wrongly. We seek it wrongly. The next two principles are common mistakes. They're common mistakes that everyone makes. It's common mistakes that I've made, probably common mistakes that you've made in your own search for happiness. The first is that real happiness is fundamental, not superficial. Real happiness is fundamental, not superficial. Look at verse 3. It tells us that the blessed person, the truly happy person, is like a tree planted by a stream of water. It bears its fruit in season, its leaf does not wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. So the tree is subject to seasons. It feels them. It isn't always bearing fruit. It isn't always productive. And yet there's something unique about this tree, and it's that the tree has been planted on a riverbank, and its roots have access to a constant stream of water that's there even when the seasons change, even when the heat comes, even when the drought comes. And so the tree, while it's not unaffected by seasons, it is immune to them in a sense. It can withstand the summer, it can withstand the winter. And the first major mistake we make is to try and find happiness in circumstances. Because we think that happiness is all about the externals, don't we? And so we adjust our lives, we do our best to, to manage our environment and arrange our lives as a means of trying to control all of those circumstances. So we think that a relationship will make us happy, so we get into a relationship. And then if it doesn't make us happy, then we get into a different relationship. If we're not happy in our job, we find a new job. We buy things. We find new roommates. We move. We change our wardrobe. We eat. We work out. We take up a hobby. And we do all kinds of things to try and up our happiness quotient because we think that if we can manage our environment and get all the pieces in the right place at the right time, then we can expect happiness to just come like raining down on us. And yet the Bible says that real happiness is not found that way. It's not found outside of you. Real happiness is found under you. It's found inside of you. It's found where your roots are. So here's the warning is if you aren't rooted in the stream, then you can't access the constant flow of happiness that comes from God. And then what? You're completely at the mercy of your circumstance. And you're completely at the mercy, totally dependent on whatever falls from the sky. And then what happens? A drought comes. Circumstances change. Relationships change. Employment changes. Tragedy strikes. And then you're cut off from the thing that you were depending on for a sense of happiness or fulfillment or security. 
I'll put it another way. Happiness is not circumstantial or superficial. It isn't about what happens to you or what doesn't happen to you. Happiness is about what you are. It's about what you are. There's an old rhyme that's uh, it's often attributed to Dale Carnegie. I don't know if he said it first, but here, here's the rhyme. Maybe you've heard this. Two men looked out through prison bars. One saw mud, the other stars. Two men looked out through prison bars. One saw mud, the other stars. What's the difference? Circumstances are identical. Same prison, same bars. What's the difference? In the men. So this tree... From verse 3, it experiences seasons, it experiences affliction, it hurts, it's affected by it, it doesn't always bear fruit, but the leaf never withers. The leaf never withers. So the fundamentally happy person is not immune to suffering, they're affected by it, but they're never in despair. And so maybe you hear that and you think, well, well not me. Right? Or maybe your experience is that you know what it's like to have something happen in your life to experience loss or to experience the end of a relationship or, or the death of a dream, and it just completely overwhelms you to the point that it feels like life itself is just draining out of you. And the feeling of despair just slowly eats away at every part of your life like blight, and you begin to wither. And honestly, I'm probably more familiar with that feeling than I am with the feeling described in the first three verses of this psalm. I know what that feeling is like. I've experienced that. But I also know that just because fundamental happiness hasn't always been the dominant reality of my life doesn't mean it's not possible. Because I've seen this happen in other people's lives. And I've known people who've gotten the call with the worst possible news. And they weren't immune, they weren't unaffected, they weren't invincible. They felt the hurt, they felt the pain, they wept, they grieved, but their leaf didn't wither, and they didn't ultimately despair. Why not? It's because what does the tree do by the stream, this tree planted by the stream, what does it do during a season of dryness? What does it do during a season of drought? It pulls up even harder from the roots. It has to to survive. And so anyone in this room who's ever experienced this sort of fundamental happiness knows this is how it happens. What did you do? You dug down deeper, and you accessed the stream in ways you hadn't accessed it before. You can't know this kind of happiness apart from hardship or pain. You can't know what it's like to rejoice in the Lord apart from experiencing suffering, because this kind of happiness only fully reveals itself in those most difficult of moments. We're not talking about a superficial happiness. We're talking about a joy that is permanent, and that not only exists alongside or parallel to tragic or painful circumstances, but it's actually stimulated by them. It is stimulated by them. And that's how you know whether you've got this circumstantial happiness, which only rains down from above and sometimes is not there at all, or whether you have this fundamental happiness, which is stimulated and even strengthened by suffering. So real happiness is not based on circumstances. It's brought about by it's not brought about, excuse me, it is not brought about by controlling your environment. It's brought about by controlling your allegiances, your allegiances, which brings us to the next point. Third principle is that real happiness cannot be found directly. It is always and only the byproduct of seeking something else more than happiness. True happiness can't be found directly. It's always and only the byproduct of seeking something else 
more than happiness. This is the consistent teaching of Scripture on this subject. Nearly every time you see the word blessed or blessed in the Bible, whether it's in the Hebrew text or in the Greek text, it's connected to this idea. Think of the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, Jesus did not say, blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for blessedness. Blessed is the one who seeks after blessedness. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So the overwhelming teaching of Scripture is that if you seek godliness more than happiness, you get both. If you seek happiness more than godliness, you get neither. That's the teaching of the text. The person who's truly happy is always the one who's stopped obsessing over their happiness or their lack of it and has stopped trying so hard and has aimed all of that effort at a completely different target. In Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses the issue of anxiety. Do you remember this portion? Do you remember his solution? It says, don't worry. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his, and his righteousness. So the reason that you're unhappy is that you've made something else your trust. You've made something else your trust. Why is it that sometimes you cheat? Why is it that sometimes you lie? Sometimes you have standards and you break them. Why is that? Because it, the normal and natural habit of our heart is to say, oh, I believe in principles. Principles are great. Principles are very good. Honesty is a good idea. Integrity is a good idea. Generosity is a good idea. But sometimes you have to make an exception. What do you mean? There's one principle that's over all the other principles. And what is it? I have to be happy. I have to be happy. So it's really, oh, I believe in telling the truth, but not if it's going to cost me my job. Not if it's going to cost me my reputation. I believe in doing this, but not if I'm going to lose that relationship over it. I believe in being generous, but not if I have to give up this other thing. I believe, I believe, I believe. But you don't believe. Because the only thing you believe is that the top priority, the number one thing, the most important thing in your life is your own happiness, and everything else comes second. And even though that's the fundamental bent of all of our souls, we will never find happiness that way. We'll never find happiness that way. If you seek happiness directly, it will always escape you. If you make a happy marriage your number one priority, you'll never have it. If you make a successful career your number one above everything else priority, you'll never have it. To be killed by the anxiety. It's the only way to be fundamentally happy is to stop trying so hard to be happy and to prioritize godliness over happiness. That's the teaching of this text. It's the overwhelming teaching of Scripture on the subject. And then lastly, real happiness is something we choose. Real happiness is not something that happens to us. It's something that we choose. Look at verse 1. Look at all of the does nots in verse 1 of this psalm. Blessed the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, and he doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. This person that's being described in verse 1 is making choices about their behavior. There's consideration. There's thoughtfulness. There's intentionality. And so verse 1 of this psalm invites us uh, into self-reflection. It invites us into self-reflection in three areas of life. The first is in our thoughts. That's the first phrase, walks not in the counsel of the wicked. The word counsel indicates that we're talking about thoughts. And then the second is in our behaviors, does not stand in the way of sinners. And then lastly, the third phrase, does not sit in the seat of scoffers. The word sit in the Semitic language, it's about belonging. It's about allegiance. So the questions that we should ask ourselves this morning are questions like these. 
Who or what is shaping my worldview, and how is that going for me? Who or what is shaping my worldview, and how's that going for me? Am I a more fundamentally happy person as a result? Or this one, who's influencing my behavior? Who's influencing my behavior, for better or for worse? Who's influencing my behavior? And do they have the kind of life that I want? Do they have the kind of life that I want? Are they a fundamentally happy person? Who's influencing my behavior? And then lastly, who do I belong with? Who do I belong with? Who or what is informing my sense of identity or my sense of belonging or my sense of purpose? Happiness is something that we choose. And what does the blessed person choose in this psalm? Verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates both day and night. The word law here, the Hebrew word Torah, it means instruction. Instruction. So we're not just talking about the part of the Bible where the rules are. Okay, it's about more than just morality. It's about more than just morality, because you can live a generally moral life apart from God, and there are people who live immorally even though they know God. True? Yeah. So this is about more than just morality. It's bigger than that. This is about aligning your life with the way that God specifically designed you to operate in a world that he created. Think about that. This is about aligning your life with the way that God designed you to operate in a world that he created. And this may be the hardest thing for some of you to believe this morning, but God wants so badly for you to be happy. He does. It is his urgent desire that you would root yourself firmly in this source of constant, unremitting joy. And maybe you were led to believe otherwise. Maybe somewhere back in your church history, someone on a stage with a microphone and a Bible told you that your happiness was not a priority to God. I can remember very clearly one time hearing a preacher ask, does God want you to be holy or does God want you to be happy? Implication, God wants you to be holy and he isn't all that concerned with whether you're happy or not. But biblically speaking, it's a false choice because they're the same thing. They're the same thing. The God who designed you and the God who created and designed this world knows exactly the best way for you to function and operate in it for your own health and happiness and for the health and happiness of everybody in it. And so the more that we align ourselves with that intention, the happier and more joyful we will be. Ignatius of Loyola said this, that sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness, not a superficial happiness, not a circumstantial happiness, not happiness in the externals, but happiness that is stimulated by suffering, happiness that is immune to seasonal change. So the choice is ours to make. Will we trust that what God wants for us really is our deepest happiness? Will we trust that God would not ask us to live and to think a certain way if it weren't truly in our best interest as people to do so? Will we choose to live the life that God created us to live, or will we keep trying to exert control over our environment, and will we keep trying to manufacture cheap fix happiness substitutes for ourselves? Will we root ourselves in the stream, or will we settle for whatever falls from the sky? The more you bring your life into alignment 
with the way that God has designed you to operate in the world that he created, the more fundamentally happy you will be as a person. That is the way that he designed it to work. So let's look just briefly at the last three verses of this psalm. The last three verses of this psalm constitute a warning. They're a warning. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so. The wicked are not so. This is meant to contrast with everything before it. So the person in verses 1 through through 3 is blessed. They are happy many times over. The wicked are not so. The person in verses 1 through 3 delights themselves in the law of the Lord and meditates on it. The wicked don't. The blessed person is firmly rooted by a stream. The wicked are not. The blessed person is immune to drought. The wicked are vulnerable. And the word wicked here, it doesn't indicate a person who's utterly evil. It doesn't indicate a person who is as evil as they could be. What it describes, it usually in, in the text, is uh, it describes people who don't know God. Just people who don't know God. They're not necessarily as evil as they could be. In fact, they might be a, a generally moral person, but they don't have any regard. They don't take into consideration the spiritual dimension of life. And so as a result, they're superficial. The writer continues, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Chaff is uh, it's the husk of a grain of wheat. And so what they would do at this time in history is they would, they would thresh the wheat, they would separate the grain from the chaff, and then they would toss the whole thing. And the seeds would fall back down, and the chaff would be blown away by the wind. And that's how they would separate the grain, the useful stuff, from the useless stuff. And that's what chaff is. That's what chaff represents in this, in this uh, psalm. Chaff is worthless. It doesn't benefit anyone. And the writer of this psalm says that's what the life of a wicked person is like. It doesn't benefit anyone. And it especially does not benefit that person themselves. Verse 5 shows us the result of that kind of life. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. So the path of godliness and the path of wickedness, they end in dramatically different places. The word that's translated stand in verse 5 is not the same word that is rendered stand in verse 1. It's a different word. This word doesn't mean to stand in place. It means to stand up. It means to arise. What verse 5 is telling us is that this person will not be able to stand upright before God's judgment. The next verse reveals two potential outcomes. Verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord watches over. The Lord protects The Lord has a special interest in the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. This word way, uh, it refers to the whole course of a life. It includes what motivates that life. It includes what that life produces. And it includes where that life ends. So one thing that we see, I think is maybe important for us to know, is that human life is not trivialized in the Bible. Human life is not mocked in the Bible. Human life is taken very seriously. It matters greatly how we live now. It matters to God, and it ought to matter to us as well. And it seems harsh, doesn't it, that this psalm ends in this way. Because it begins with all of this very beautiful imagery, very peaceful, very joyous imagery, and with such a wonderful promise, and it ends with such a dire warning. 
And oftentimes we read verses like this, and we might end up with the idea that God is eager to dole out judgment, or that God is fundamentally angry, Uh, but he's not. He's not. Here's Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy. Quote, Jesus himself was and is a joyous, creative person. He does not allow us to continue thinking of our Father who fills and overflows space as a morose and miserable monarch, a frustrated and petty parent, or a policeman on the prowl. One cannot think of God in such ways while confronting Jesus' declaration, he that has seen me has seen the Father. So one of the most outstanding features of Jesus' personality was precisely an abundance of joy. This he left as an inheritance to his students, that their joy might be full, John 15, 11. It is deeply illuminating of kingdom living to understand that his steady happiness was not ruled out by his experience of sorrow and even grief. So don't you see what this means? Jesus is the model of true humanity. Jesus is the model of what it looks like to live rooted in this stream. And it's because he's rooted in his Father. And why is God the only stream of unremitting happiness? Why is God the only place where we can go? Why is God better than circumstantial happiness? Why is God better than another person? Here's why. It's because God, contrary to what you may have been told, is the happiest being in the universe. He is the happiest being in the universe. He is the most joyful being. He is the most satisfied being. He is the most fulfilled being. He is the happiest being in all of the universe, and he's infinite. And when an infinite being offers to inject his happiness into you, that happiness is inexhaustible. And it's the only source. And that's the offer that's on the table this morning from God to you. Is that happiness is possible. It's not natural. And it's not unachievable. It's possible. It is possible. And it's fundamental. It's not superficial. It only comes as a byproduct of seeking godliness more than you seek happiness itself. And it's something you have to choose. It's something you have to choose. God will not force happiness on you. He will not force blessing on you. He will not force fulfillment or satisfaction or joy on you. You have to choose it for yourself. You have to choose it for yourself. The things that this psalm describes, the, uh, the blessing, the happiness, the closeness with God, they're only available. They're only available through Jesus Christ. They're only available through him. And it's because of him that we even have the option to root ourselves in the stream of God's blessing. He gave that option to each of us by coming to earth and living as a perfect, a perfect model of true humanity and then dying on a cross as a sacrifice for our sin, for all of the ways that we fail to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness, that God is actually out to give us good things. So on the cross, Jesus became a curse for us, Galatians 3.13, so that the blessing of God could be poured out and unleashed into our lives. And we're going to celebrate that this morning by taking communion together. What we do when we take communion is we eat the bread, we drink the cup to remember Jesus' death. And so if you put your faith in Jesus alone, 
for the forgiveness of your sins, then you are welcome, welcome to participate in communion with us this morning. And we also have uh, Jenny and Jeff Sanyuk will be in the back. They're our prayer team this morning. So if you'd like to talk to somebody about what it, what it means to have a relationship with God, if you'd like to just talk to somebody about what's going on, if you would like someone to pray with you, pray for you, then they are available to you, and I will be back there as well. So let me pray briefly for all of us, and then the tables will be open. Jesus, thank you for showing us what it, what it means, what it looks like to be a fundamentally happy person, to be rooted in joy that can only come from God. Thank you for coming to earth to, to taste our sadness, to be with us, to experience life with us, to hurt with us, to suffer with us, and to show us that joy, even in the midst of horrible horrible suffering is possible and that we can take hold of it. Thank you for making that possible for each of us this morning. We remember you as we eat this bread and we drink this cup and we ask that you would show us all of the ways that that we choose to trust in the things that fall from the sky instead of rooting ourselves in the stream. Make us more aware. We ask it in your name. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.